have a Bible with you, uh, or if you want to grab one in the pew in front of you, turn to the, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, in the pew Bible, we're going to be on page 1037. Taking a little break from Genesis this morning. Um, we're, uh, we're at the place in Genesis where we start talking about the Nephilim. If you're familiar with the Nephilim, it's a weird story. And I just didn't want to do that on our birthday. So <laughs> we're doing something different. Um, but we are going to do some Q&R at the end. If you have questions at all, um, you can feel free to text them to the text number. And we will take a look at them at the end of the message. So as a kind of my personality, I, I, like, to, I like to accomplish things. I like, I like to know stuff, and I like to get stuff done. I like to do stuff well. I like to be competent. Um, but I'm not really a natural leader. I don't walk into a room and take charge. Uh, I'm quiet. People wear me out. Um, I like working at home in the background. Um, if somebody has a real compelling vision, I'm happy to assist. So when God stirred my heart to plant a church in 2011, I didn't do it. <laughs> I just wrote about it in my journal. We, we, didn't, we didn't plant Revelation Church until 2018, and, and the whole process of doing that is a story for another time. But by the time the Lord had spoken consistently through his word and through other people that, hey, this is something that we need to do enough, um, we stepped out in 2018 and, and started meeting. I did so confident that God was leading us and also afraid that we would fail. Uh, some people applauded us, cheered us on, Jared Lida at All of Life offered to give us some of their people. I'm not sure which people they were. They might not have been a great bargain. <laughs> um, other uh, leaders in town told us that God was obviously calling us to plant a church in a different city because Coeur d'Alene was full. I have a stack of books that contain all the secrets about how to plant a successful church. One of them is from the 90s, and it has a whole section dedicated to picking out a high-speed tape duplicator so that you can share your sermons with people. After all the vision casting, all the planning, all the budgets, the equipment, and the strategy, none of that work leading up to our launch in September of 2018 was bad. Some of it was actually good. But three years into the life of this community that God has created, more than ever, I feel how much very little of that matters. In thinking about the uh, 80 or so men, women, and children that call this church their family, I find myself praying for you in ways that look a lot like the way the Apostle Paul prays for the churches that he started. And so before we eat hot dogs and cake, 
I want to spend a few minutes this morning taking a look at Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church and hopefully echo some of those hopes for Revelation church. So we're going to be, like I said, in Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul writes in verse 14, for this reason, because of all the things that we're not going to read in the first half of this book, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul prays for four things for the Ephesian church in this letter. And I, these are four things that I, is my prayer will be real for us as well. And the first thing we see in verse 16, he says, I pray that he, that God may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you would be strengthened. Strength is often measured by exterior metrics, resource, ability, influence, because outside forces push against us and we want to be people that can push back. We are not strong, so we go to the gym. We're not strong enough, so we purchase weapons. We're not smart, so we get education. We do research. We're, We're not rich, so we save money. All of these things, none of them are bad necessarily, but they're all things that illustrate our inner weakness. We lack. And these things, they provide outer strength. I've been eating a keto diet for the last month, mostly just for fun. Um, (laughs) And I've been eating a lot of avocados and a lot of eggs. And it struck me this week that avocados and eggs are very similar and very different. Eggs, they're both shaped like ovals, right? You know, they're both egg-shaped. Eggs are very, very weak on the inside. And to compensate for that, they have a very hard outer shell. But if that outer shell breaks, it's all over for the egg. Avocados, on the other hand, they're very hard on the inside, but on the outside, they're very soft and pliable, and it's almost like they want you to come after their outsides, because when their outsides are stripped away, their inside can actually do the work of being a seed. Inner strength is very different than outer strength. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his Ephesians commentary says, the Christian way of dealing with all life's problems is not in the first place to do anything about them, but to deal with our own spiritual state. We are faced with outward trials, sickness, poverty, relationships gone wrong, even persecution for some in the body of Christ. We have inward doubts, anxiety, fear, shame, depression, pride, lust, bitterness. And we need 
inner strength for all of these things. Inner strength is a bit of a paradox because even when we know that there is no outer strength, we recognize and appreciate inner strength. You've probably seen this picture. This is famously called Tank Man. This is a young, probably 19-year-old protester at Tiananmen Square. And uh, nobody knows what happened to this guy. Some say that he's, he was arrested and, and murdered by the Chinese government. Others say he fled to Taiwan. And um, I think Wikipedia says he might be an engineer or work at a zoo or something. I don't remember. Nobody knows. But we look at this picture and we recognize that that tank can and will destroy him. And yet we also see the huge amount of inner strength that this man possesses to be willing to stand in front of that tank. So for the Christian, where does inner strength come from? Paul prays it, that, that, it would, that it would come from the Spirit of God, from Christ, through faith. Faith is this idea that we believe, that we trust, that we give our allegiance to something. That we recognize that the Spirit of Christ is the centerpiece of who we are. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? unless you fail the test. That's kind of a scary verse. But the reality is being a Christian is really simple. It's, it's yes or no. Are you in or are you out? If you're in, you recognize your sinfulness, your brokenness. You decide to turn away from it. You turn toward Jesus, trusting in his goodness, in his death and resurrection on your behalf to make you right with God. You enter into the family through baptism and you begin the lifelong process of reorienting your life around the teachings and lifestyle of Christ. And if you're not, if you're out, if you're not a Christian, you just don't do those things. Either you're a Christian or you're not. And Paul is writing to the Christians in Ephesus. So why does he pray that Christ would dwell in them? And how does he expect this to happen? If we're Christians today, doesn't Christ already dwell in us? Haven't we been sealed with the Holy Spirit? Yes. So what's Paul praying for? That this inner strength would increase, that Christ would dwell in us. He says, it's a gift. I pray that he may grant you, a grant is a gift that comes from beholding the riches of the glory of God. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory. That's a kind of a weird church phrase, the riches of the glory of God. How many of you know someone who's an audiophile? Or who's an audiophile? Drew's an audiophile. Yeah, so an audiophile is somebody that really likes music and invests a lot of time and effort and money into their sound system. I have a friend named Doug who's an audiophile, and he's spent thousands and thousands of dollars on speakers and stereos and, and you know, like the 
gold-plated cable that sounds better. And he's got like a concrete block that he sets his receiver on to mitigate vibrations. And he's so into it. And he's a Beatles fan. And I like the Beatles. I listen to the Beatles occasionally on my AirPods or through my uh, MacBook speaker. It's about that big around. And they sound great. I love the Beatles. But see, when Doug listens to the Beatles, he's listening to the same song, but he's hearing it in a completely different way. He's hearing the breathing of John Lennon in between the lines of the vocals. He's hearing the little, the little squeaky noises in Ringo's hi-hat pedal. He's hearing all of the beautiful harmonies and the, the instruments and all of the arrangement in just as much detail and beauty as he can possibly get out of his sound system. See, we're both listening to the same songs, but he is beholding the riches of the glory of the Beatles. And for you and I, Christian, we all possess the spirit of Christ, but some of us are experiencing Jesus through our AirPods, and some of us are experiencing Jesus through a $30,000 sound system. It's the same Jesus, and we all have access to that Jesus. We have all have access to that strength. We all have access to the power of the Spirit. But we get to choose how much of it we're going to take on. We've been invited into a, a communion with God in which we get to bask in the multifaceted riches of who He is. And this is what gives us strength. Strengthened on the inside, prepared for dangers that might be coming by recognizing and glorying in the goodness of Jesus who lives inside of us. The second thing he says is, in, in the back half of verse 17, he says, I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love. Being rooted and firmly established in love. The first illustration he uses is the word rooted. We just got grass at our house. I'm so excited about that. We have a lawn now. And we were offered two different kinds of grass when we were laying sod. The, the sod company said we could get bluegrass or we could get fescue. And they said bluegrass has, has roots that go about six inches into the ground. Fescue has roots that go about four feet into the ground. If you get fescue, you're not going to have to water it as much. It's going to be resistant to disease. It's going to be resistant to the sun because it's going to be more deeply rooted. When outside circumstances are bad, deep roots keep the fescue thriving. The second thing Paul says is firmly established. That's an architectural word. It's, it's about the foundation of a building. Uh, one World Trade Center, the, the building that they built to replace the, the World Trade Center buildings that came down 20 years ago, is 1,776 feet tall. They did that on purpose. But that building has a 70-foot-deep foundation. It goes 70 feet into the ground so that it can support everything that's above it. Whether you're talking about roots 
or foundations, both of these things require the ground, the thing that they're in, to be solid and secure. So Paul is still talking to us about strength, about resilience, about perseverance under trials. So the question is, is is that how we understand love? I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And Paul isn't talking about God's love here, or in Ephesians, he's talking about our love for other people. Lloyd-Jones again says, the real strength of the Christian's life is love. We are living in days when love is often regarded as something weak and flabby and sentimental, but love is strong. Love is the grandest and the most powerful influence in the world. And that doesn't seem right. I mean, it is in all the movies, right? Like, pick the, pick the movie where love is like the, the thing that saves the day. But boots on the ground, it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like love is the sort of thing that is strong against the sort of things that are trying to harm us. Think about all of the things that you need to be strong against, outside forces, inside anxieties. Love just doesn't feel that strong. Think of all the ways that love opens you up to being taken advantage of. C.S. Lewis says it this way, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So if love is the expression of this inner strength, this counterintuitive idea that that the protection that we have against the things that would seek to harm us is love. I wonder, are we, again, are we eggs or are we avocados? Are we people that that put up a barrier on the outside because we have to protect the weakness that's inside? Or are we a people that keep ourselves soft on the outside so that the things that are on the inside can come out and be fruitful. The next thing that Paul says is being being rooted and grounded in love, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. It's a reminder here that Paul is praying for the church. All of these yous in Ephesians, they're plural. One of the problems with English is we don't have a plural you. In the South, they say y'all, but we don't do that in Idaho. 
And the tendency when we read, especially the New Testament, is we see the word you and we think, oh, Paul's talking to me. And that's fine. He probably is. But he's actually talking to us. He's talking, he says, the saints. Saints is, a, is another weird word. We think about saints and we think about people who have died and, and maybe they have some stained glass windows and, and people pray to them if you have a Catholic background. But the word saint, it means holy ones. And he's calling all of us holy ones. We've been set apart for God. And he says, I want you to be able to comprehend, to really grasp God's love. And how do you, how do, you do that? Well, you do it with all the saints. We will grasp the love of God as it is expressed through other people in the church. Tim Mackey makes the comment that if you do a word search on the spirit of God in the Bible, he is almost always revealed in his work through people. There are a few times when God's spirit does something all by himself. One big one is at creation. There's nothing else but God and the spirit of God is there in creation. But most of the time, the spirit of God is working through people to do what he wants to do. As we are rooted and firmly established in love, as we are soaking up its nutrients and securing our footing with it, other people in the church will begin to see how God loves them. And this isn't a warm rush of feelings when we sing. It's, it's not a, an impression in our private study, but it's the way that these brothers and sisters treat you, rooted and firmly established in love, that will teach you what the love of God looks like. As a Christian, you know the love of God. If you, if you are... Um, a follower of Jesus here, you recognize that God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die and rise from the dead in your place. Love is the first step to understanding that he saved you. But do you want more? Do you long for more? What are you doing to enter into a greater experience of God's love? Paul gives us four dimensions, length and width, height, and depth. What is he talking about? If we, we back up to chapter two of Ephesians, verse 19, he says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the state saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Paul says that we as the church are a holy temple. The temple would have been a big, beautiful, massive building that you would walk into and just marvel at. And when he says, I want you to comprehend the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love, I think he's referring back to that temple. And that temple is us. We understand God's love more completely as we express it through one another. And this is something that, that grows as you experience it. It was a few years ago, my family went to Florida. We went to NASA and we went to the rock garden or rocket garden at Cape Canaveral. This is a picture of the rocket garden. And you, you walk through here and you see these rockets and they're so big. 
If you've never, if you've never been here, I mean, you can see the people in the bottom corner. Like they're just, they just tower over you and they're huge. And I, I, just, I just remember thinking like, these are so big. And then they said, hey, do you want to go see the Saturn V? And I said, well, why isn't the Saturn V here? Well, see, you have to get on a bus and drive to another building. And then you walk in this building and you see the Saturn V that you can't even fit upright in the building. It's long ways and it's ginormous. And you walk into this building, you go, wow, I thought I knew what a big rocket was and I did not. Those rockets at the rocket garden are tiny. They're insignificant compared to this amazing piece of engineering. And so Paul's invitation to us, much like the the, the temple, is to experience the bigness of God's love, the length and the height and the breadth and the width, and just marvel at how amazing he is. We begin to know God's love with our minds and our heads, but Paul's prayer is that we would start to experience God's love in a way that surpasses knowledge, he says. Not in a way that rejects knowledge, but in a way that goes through knowledge to something deeper. My daughter Karis is in driver's ed. She spent, I don't know, eight weeks or so on the computer, reading, taking online tests, everything from traffic laws to, um, you know, the switches and knobs on a dashboard. And and she, she finished all of the book work. And then they gave her a driver's license. Is that what happened? No. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Then she had to go out and get in a car for the first time. And we went out to, uh, a number of weeks ago, we went out to the, shop, the old Shopco parking lot, and I, I put her behind the wheel for the very first time. And she did great. But one of the things she said was like, wow, it's, it's interesting getting the hang of the accelerator pedal and how much you have to push to get the gas and, and how, what the brake pedal feels like and, and getting the feeling of the steering wheel. Because in order to drive, you have to experience it. You can't just read about it in a book. You have to actually get involved for a long time. I think she has 50 more hours before she can get her license. <laughs> That's Paul's point here is we don't want to just know about the love of God. We don't want to understand it. We we should understand it. We should have a good mental grasp. We should love the Lord with our minds, but we can't stop there. We have to keep moving into the experience of God's love. So let's take a look at these four dimensions of God's love. God's love is long. Jeremiah 31 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I continued to extend faithful love to you. Revelation 13 says, all those who live on the earth will worship the the mark of the beast. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slaughtered. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's love is long, and it's started for you before the foundation of the world. God has loved you with an everlasting love. The love of Christ has always been for you from before time began and all the way into the future, including today. 
Jesus' love is unending, unchanging. It doesn't fade or waver. The day you think you blew it and God can't possibly still love you, you're mired in secret sin. You've messed up an important relationship. You're guilty and you're ashamed. God still loves you. God's love is long. God's love is also wide. Revelation 5.9 says, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Jesus' love is wide enough for everyone to come into the kingdom of God. Every tribe and language and people and nation. Maybe, maybe you don't think you're good enough for God's love. You don't measure up. And the truth is, you're not. I'm not. But my goodness doesn't bring me into the kingdom of God. Jesus' goodness does. One day we will marvel at the multitude of people that Jesus' wide love brings in, that we thought had no place in God's kingdom. God's love is high. I've got a, this is Ephesians chapter one, and it's a long passage, but we're going to read all of it because it's amazing. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we've also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who have already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession, to the praise of his glory. Jesus' love is high. It exalts us into the presence of God. That whole amazing paragraph is about you, Christian. It's about the way that God sees you. We tend to think of the love of God as the thing that takes our sin away, that Jesus came to, the, to earth to die on the cross to remove our sin from us. And that's true. We want to rejoice in that. But Jesus' love for us is so much more than that. He gives us riches and honor and blessing as his brothers and sisters adopted into the family of God. God in Christ does not just erase our negative balance of sin. He funds our account with uncountable riches. Jesus does not call you a sinner. He calls you a saint. 
God's love is also deep. Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, didn't, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus doesn't just inconvenience himself to express his love for us. He lays down all of his rights, all of his privileges, and he dies because of his love for us. These four things, this height and and depth and width and length, all of these things are things that, that are evident in the scriptures but require us to meditate on. They're riches that, that we may never fully grasp. Lloyd-Jones, commenting on this passage again, says, you do not suddenly reach the summit of knowledge of his love. So if you desire to reach this mountaintop and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, you had better start climbing at once. Forsake the flat plains of the Christian life immediately. Turn your back upon the ordinary level and begin to scale the heights. Every step you take up that mountain will bring to your experience something new and fresh that you have never known before. And then the final part of Paul's prayer this morning in verse 19. I want you to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. Sometimes it sounds a little bit like Eastern mysticism when you talk about the fullness of God and being filled with God, like, you know, the drop turns into the ocean. That's not what Paul is talking about, but he is talking about union with God, becoming like God. Not becoming God, but becoming just like God in every way possible. There are some ways that we can never be like God. God is omniscient and omnipresent and, and sovereign over the universe. But being created in God's image, there are a lot of ways that we can be like God. And this is expressed all over the New Testament. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Paul says there are people that God has chosen to be gifted in special ways in the body of Christ so that the entire church will be made like Jesus. Think of a a set of scales. Jesus is on one side and the church is on the other side. As we mature, the scales balance out. And if that seems a little heretical, I feel that. But Ephesians 4 says that we are measured against Jesus and we will be found to be like him. Romans 8 says something similar. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be firstborn among many brothers and sisters, conformed, shaped, made to look like his son. The firstborn in a family, we become like Jesus. 
Jesus himself says in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. The vine and the branches are both part of the same plant. Jesus is God in a very special way, but he's also the one true human being. We will never be God, but we will be made truly human by Jesus, who is the one true picture of what God is like. And we will become images of God in ways that our sin has prevented us because we are being made to look like Jesus. So this is my prayer for us as a church, that the Father would grant us, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in our inner being through his spirit, and that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. I pray that we, being rooted and firmly established in love, would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what do we do with that? Where do we go from there? Many of you know we've been sending out kind of a church health diagnostic survey every quarter since the beginning of the year. And I just want to throw up some, some data because it seems like the appropriate thing to do. Um, there's five categories in this survey. And if you've taken the survey, you know that there's a health category, a physical health category. There's a faith category, a finances category, a vocation category, and a relationship category. And, and, and the blue one was last winter, and the orange one was in the spring, and the gray one was the summer. As a people, we've been incredibly connected to our faith throughout this whole season. We believe in the promises of God. And, and more or less... We've been financially stable. Our physical health has been kind of iffy. We had a pandemic and all, you know. But the ones that, that interest me the most is our vocational health and our relational health. Vocation is the question, why do I get up in the morning? What is the point of my life? Is what I'm doing worthwhile? Does it matter? And then relationship is, is easy. What are, what are the relationships I have with people? Are they strong? Are they healthy? Are they life-giving? Or are they stressed? Are they strained? Here's the thing I think about that, is as we struggle in these areas, I think as God answers this prayer from the book of Ephesians, those numbers would go up. I think if God were to graciously answer this prayer for us, these areas in which we struggle would grow stronger because we would be strengthened with an inner strength and we would be rooted and firmly established in love. And with all the saints, we would experience the love of God together and be moving towards fullness of Christ. And to that end, um, I wanted, I, I, I've got a resource for us. I'm going to say I, I got us a present for our birthday in the same way that um, my youngest daughter gets a present for her mother on her birthday. It's like I buy it and she gives it to her. 
the publisher of this book, Gentle and Lowly, gave us a case of them. Uh, it's by an author named Dane Ortland. And uh, I have one for everyone to, to take, to keep. I have extras probably if somebody that you know wants one. But this book is an exploration of the heart of Jesus for you. If you're someone who is maybe hearing the things about God's love for you, about your, um, your place as a, as a member of God's family, and you just, you just don't believe it, you have a hard time with it, you struggle with it, um, you should read this book. It's not a funny book. There's not a lot of clever stories and anecdotes. There's, there's no charts. It's just a couple hundred pages of staring deeply into the reality of Jesus' love. Um, There are truths in this book that are clear in Scripture that we do not remember. And I would love it if everyone took a copy and took a copy for a friend and read through these. It's, they're short chapters. You can read through them devotionally. But if you're, if you're hearing this prayer about what it looks like to be filled with the love of God, to be established in the love of God, to experience the love of God, if you want to be, if you want to be an audiophile when it comes to the love of Jesus, this is a practical way to do that. I think more than more than all the things that my church planting books told me were important is that we would be people that are just deeply in love with Christ and that that love just radiates out from us uh, from this place through these relationships and out into the community. And the only way that's going to happen, like Martin Lloyd-Jones said, is if we start climbing that hill and beholding his glory. And so that's my encouragement for us this morning on our birthday. So we're going we're gonna to take communion like we always do. And, and it's often... We come to church expecting to, you know, have some takeaways, some tools. What are we supposed to do with this prayer of Paul's? Uh, in in gent- Gentle and Lowly at the end, um, Portland has this to say about just beholding the beauty of Christ. He says, what are we to do with this? The main answer is Nothing. To ask, how do I apply this to my life, would be a trivialization of the point of this study. If an Eskimo wins a vacation to a sunny place, he doesn't arrive in his hotel room, step out onto the balcony, and wonder how to apply that to his life. He just enjoys it. He just basks in it. As we remind ourselves of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, as as you take the elements of communion back to your seat, and meditate on his love for you, my encouragement for us today 
for all of us as a, as a brand new three-year-old is just to bask in the love of Jesus. Just marvel in his love for you. Spend a few moments as we sing just enjoying the reality that more than anything else, you are loved by God. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.